You're listening to a Burnt Toast production. Nero finds Chip Shop Elvis where he knew he would, hanging around the toilets at Victoria Station. Soul touts all have their favourite spots, anywhere humanity might be at its lowest ebb. Sports bars, internet cafes, hospital waiting rooms, laundrettes, bus stations, airport lounges and railway toilets. Little temples of hopelessness where a tout might find the right ear to whisper, life could be so much better. Maybe you just need something new to look forward to. Or maybe you should try being someone else. When the mark was hooked, it was off to the nearest soulsmith for a nip, a tuck and a trade or three. Nero isn't sure he approves, it's just how things are. If pushed, he has to admit he never feels too sorry for those easy marks. They don't know how lucky they have it, living their normal lives in the sunlight, not dancing between shadows on the manors. Whatever problems they have will always be smaller than his. That said, he can't stand Chip Shop Elvis. There is something pathetic about his untrustworthiness, as if the tout has long ago realised nobody is going to like him. So the best he can hope for is they might feel sorry for him. He is small and pinched, as withdrawn as far into himself as humanly possible, his hands clutched in front of him, his shoulders curled in like an old sandwich. His voice is high and wheedling, reminding Nero of a shopping trolley's least reliable wheel. His clothes are double denim, the lapels of his jacket dotted with pin badges from forgotten bands. His black hair is slicked back into a duck's ass. Whatever grease he has used there seems to have seeped downwards until it permeates everything. His skin glistens with it, his clothes are stained with it, even his winkle-picker shoes seem to shine with it. In short, Nero doesn't want to touch him, which is unfortunate, given that is the only reason he is here. Chip Shop Elvis is at the urinal, not doing anything, waiting. He's picked up more than his fair share of marks here. Men come to cry at the urinal, because they can rely on nobody to be looking at their faces. When Nero comes to stand beside him, Chip Shop doesn't look up straight away. He waits. He hears nothing, no rattle of pee on the stainless steel. That is a good sign. Now you let the sadness marinate. You wait for the tears and... He recognises the two-toned shoes on the tiles beside his. He knows those neatly pressed trousers. He glances up at the face beside him. Oh, bugger. Nero grabs Chip Shop's head by its duck's ass, bounces it once off the wall, and drags the owner up the steps onto the concourse, where Kilby and Theo are waiting. There is a kind of overexposed bleakness to the station, Theo feels, particularly after the cosy half-light of the Albion. Everything here is too bright and too busy, which seems to draw attention to how tired, dirty, and hollow Theo feels. Life streams around her in directions she can't fathom, people hurrying to jobs, parents shepherding children, tourists dragging suitcases on and off trains. To be frank, the normality of the mid-morning seems alienating. She is in crisis, and the world hasn't noticed. But it is more than that. Since leaving the Albion, Theo has a weird sense of claustrophobia, as if the world is pressing in at her in ways she hadn't noticed before. At times, it feels almost like deja vu, like 
She can feel what she has to do as she does it. She catches herself, pausing on the first syllable of words, wondering where they have come from. Has she already spoken these words? Has she chosen them? She realizes now that she had felt this way after that first visit to the Albion. Back then, she'd been too wrapped up in bewilderment to notice. Now, she is acclimatized. That worries her. Maybe there is no going back to normal, to an ordinary morning. As it is, she is surprised and a little pleased that nobody seems to notice or complain when Nero drags a small man out of the gents and drops him on the nearest bench. Sitting on the other end of that bench, Kilby hands the man the takeaway coffee he had asked Theo to buy a few minutes earlier. Three sugars, he says, just the way you like it. Kilby is all charm again, but Theo thinks he seems more happy than seems proper. An hour earlier, they'd been clambering up the edge of an underground platform, having narrowly avoided murder at least twice. Kilby seems convinced their lives were in danger, those butchers would be back for their box if some nuns didn't beat them to it, but he shows no sign of trauma. On the drive here, he had talked garrulously about maps and manners and the sort of forbidden treasures you might find there. Theo had been willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that this might be nervous energy portending a breakdown, but worried the boy was actually enjoying himself. As for Nero, he just lowered his trilby and kept his eyes on the road. This was a problem because Theo isn't ready to be the only one who can't cope. She's too competitive for that. She will use Kilby to find Josh, to bring him home, and fall apart later when nobody is watching. Yes, she thinks, that works for me. Chip Shop Elvis takes the offered cup, sniffs it, and draws it into his chest as if worried Kilby might change his mind. Your friend has very bad manners, he says. He is rubbing a new bump on his forehead. Always has done. Wouldn't hurt him to be nice to a fellow, would it? I'm only doing a bit of business. Don't know why he has to make it personal. Kilby nods, understanding. Say sorry, Nero. Piss off. Fair enough. Listen, chip shop. Gavin. What? My name's Gavin. I don't like being called chip shop. Why do they call me that? Nero is still wiping the palm of his right hand with a handkerchief. The grease isn't shifting. It's a mystery, Kilby says. But not a fun one. This is Theodora Jones, chip shop. I believe you've met her boyfriend. Chip Shop shutters his eyes at Theo. Who says I have? Drink your coffee before it gets cold, Kilby says. I have reliable information. Also, I'm in a hurry before several different people try to kill me. Us, Nero says. So let's skip ahead to the good bit. With the magician's flourish, Kilby flips a Polaroid from his waistcoat pocket to arrive a short distance from Chip Shop's pock nose. This is Jones's boyfriend. You met him and a friend at the Albion some months ago. You were seen, probably. What I want to know is where they went next. Chip Shop takes a desultory sip from his coffee. Maybe I did meet them, but I didn't take them nowhere. Didn't do no business. Kilby tuts. I don't think I believe you. Do you believe him, Nero? No. Nero doesn't believe you either, Chip Shop. Gavin, and I feel obliged to point out that his manners don't improve when he gets suspicious. I blame the parents, but he doesn't have any. How's your head? Saw. That was completely unprovoked. All he had to do was say hello. Why do people have to be so nasty to me? I'm never nasty to nobody. Story of my life, you wouldn't believe the things my old mum used to say to me. 
You helped Jones's boyfriend swap his soul with the other man. What I want to know is what happened next. I never did. Gaffin, please, I bought you a coffee. Don't tell me porkies. Honest, I don't know why people don't believe me. It must be my face. It's not my fault it lets me down. I can't help the face I have. Nero cracks his knuckles. Chip Shop gulps his coffee. Okay, so I met the two of them. He was Australian, I remember. Get a lot of Australians. They come here thinking London will welcome them with open arms, the old mother country routine, but they're too ashamed to pack their bags and head home. He isn't looking at Theo, but she still makes an effort not to care what he thinks. Kilby's smile is less patient now. The good bit, Gavin. They didn't want to swap, not a straight swap. That was odd, I thought. Could, could have done that for them on the spot, but he didn't want me to. Why not? Beats me. Wasn't her boyfriend that said no, it was the other one. Skinny geezer. He was pulling the strings. I got the feeling he didn't trust me. Why don't people trust me? I ain't never hurt nobody. So where do they go? Theo hasn't meant to say anything. She's been doing her best impression of calm, but such an expert level of calm has proved exhausting. The question leapt past her in a moment of weakness. Chip Shop regards her through the same shutters as before. What's in it for me, anyway? People always think they can get something out of me for nothing. I'm forever being exploited. Ain't I worth more than a coffee and a bang on the head? You want something from me, you give me something in return. He nods at Theo. She's holding, ain't she? Maybe she's got something for me. Now then, Kilby says, Jones is paying me. That includes expenses. Nero? Nero has been leaning against the wall, working his way through a crossword from a stray newspaper. Eddie Cochran, Finsbury Park, Astoria, April 9th, 1960. These words cast a spell on Chip Shop. He sits forward, gulps down more of his coffee, gasps as he scolds his throat, and licks his lips. You found it, he says, with southern reverence. Better than any bootleg, Nero says. Gene Vincent, Vince Eager, Eddie's last London concert. Theo detects a spark of shared enthusiasm, but Nero does his best to stamp it out. No big deal. Chip Shop considers this, finishes his coffee, winces. I took them to Soho, little manor behind the tobacconist, you know it, all gaslight and fog, like a proper film. The old miser always does me a good percentage, not cheap for the punter, sure, but they look desperate enough. The skinny bloke, anyways. He looked dead scared, if you ask me. Something nasty on his back, I reckoned. Not that he confided in me. Nobody never confides in me. Kilby looks to Nero for a second opinion. The other man nods and comes over with his pencil. Guess you ate his head, he says to Chip Shop. The small man gets his jacket knotted in his hurry to pull out his pocketbook of London maps. Like the one Theo saw last night, this is annotated with post-it notes and biro scrawls. Nero skims through, sniffing at these footnotes without finding anything of interest, until he locates Finsbury Park. This done, he makes a few careful pencil scribbles on the page and hands the book back to Chip Shop, who stares at it with Christmas morning glee. Eddie, he says, at last. What was all that about? Theo asks as they head for the exit. Nero spent years building a collection of the best gigs London's ever seen. Or hasn't. He's just shown Chip Shop Elvis how to find his way into one of them. Now he'll be able to go back as many times as he likes. See if I head there any time soon, Nero mutters. Worst thing about Chip Shop, innit? Bass has got good taste in music. 
I hadn't imagined, Theo says. It was a dizzying idea. All those lost nights out, all those concerts of legend, were still happening somewhere, if you knew where to find them. Beatles, Stones, Bowie, Sex Pistols, Kate Bush, Pulp, all that Britpop she was ten years too late for. She laughs, realises Nero is frowning at her, and remembers herself. Are we going to Soho? Soulsmith, Kilby says. We're making progress. It's almost lunchtime, and nobody has tried to kill us since breakfast. I call that a result. If you like, I'll let you buy me a sandwich. The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk Book One, How to Disappear Completely Written and performed by Mike Bartlett Chapter 12 of Soho Kilby leads Theo towards might have been a manor, a bubble of garish neon promising naked ladies and dirty books. Theo has no great interest in either, but this little pocket of urban grubbiness pleases her all the same. It's what she had expected London to look like. It's grime, exotic, and strange to someone who had grown up in the neat blandness of Perth. She loves that it jostles against the tourist thrum of Piccadilly, Chinatown, Oxford Street, and the bright lights of the West End. She loves this jumble of contradictions, the modern and the faded history. London would always have something to surprise her. Wasn't that why she came here? For surprises? Well, the past 24 hours have certainly delivered on that. Beside a tobacconist, Kilby steps sideways through the foot traffic and jerks a thumb at a narrow alleyway beside it. Theo realises the alleyway, which may not have been there three seconds earlier, is in darkness as if occupied by a little patch of night sheltering from the mid-morning glare. Kilby goes first, Theo follows, and Nero brings up the rear. He is reading as he walks. This new book is a hardback in library binding, the spine stickered and the title faded behind plastic wrap. Squinting in the sudden darkness, Theo can see the book is called A Dictionary of Victorian Slang. Nero reads it like a page-turner, or, Theo thinks, like someone desperate to avoid conversation. You don't like me, she says. Ain't given it much thought. We could be friends. I don't need friends. Theo tries not to sound hurt. You and Kilby are friends, aren't you? We're a job, that's all. I'm getting out. Anywhere special? Hmm. Nero pushes past her, and Theo turns to follow, realising she no longer knows where she is. Black-winged moths flicker in the half-light around her. She feels damp thicken in her shirt and tights. The air is refrigerator-cold and scrubs at her throat. She has a sudden sense of myopia, as if the world ahead is being sketched in detail at the very last minute. More than a few feet ahead, everything is conceptual, an oily smear of light and shadow. Looking behind her, she can no longer see the morning, but the same damp evening that surrounds her. They come out of the alley onto Berwick Street, although Theo hardly recognises it. What hits her first is the fruity tang of horseshit, followed by the rush and rattle of a handsome cab, the driver shouting obscenities. The effect is like being mugged by the street itself. 
The stench comes at her with such anger that she has the urge to wrestle it. The noise, surging from a mumble to a roar, is enough to make her stagger backwards, heightened by the claustrophobia of not being able to see all the way to the nearest street corner. The combination of gaslight and fog is so oppressive that Theo nearly forgets to marvel at this scene in front of her. She has seen it every Christmas on cards and biscuit tins. Now she is here, and boy does it stink. She giggles. It's the only sane response. She has stepped from neon glare to gaslight smear, from real life to a BBC costume drama. The Albion had been one thing, a theme park, a short walk from her own world. It almost made sense, but this, this was magic. This is insanity. She thinks of Nero's A to Z, every post-it note or sharpie scrawl another manner. She thinks of that box in Kilby's coat, the forbidden maps. How many of these are there? Where else could she find herself? And when? You okay, Jones? Theo giggles again. She hopes to stop soon. Nero pushes past her into a shop on the corner of the alley. A pawn shop, complete with golden balls above the door. A sign reads, Parnell and Hinchcliffe, Soulsmiths and Traders. Lives bought, sold, and repaired. The panels of the front windows are fogged, but painted in with an enticing amber light that seems to wax and wane. Theo coughs twice on entering. As the door closes behind her, the dampness of the street gives way to a dry dustiness that salts her raw throat. The room is full of the sort of tarnished treasures whose value very much depends on the eye of the beholder. There are shelves crammed with extraordinary carvings and statues, distorted figures in wood, iron, china and ivory, many of them no doubt looted from far-flung corners of the empire. Among them are filed assorted weapons of rust and brass, silenced timepieces and thick volumes of vellum. On a well-trodden Persian rug are arranged bizarre items of furniture that Theo couldn't name, it being by no means certain that their creators had ever bothered to christen them. In the corners of the room stand suits of mail like phantoms in armour. Theo has haunted enough charity shops to be familiar with the appealing fragrance of must and hopefulness. She knows the jumbled sailor's spark of excitement that a forgotten treasure might be unearthed among the debris. She knows her flotsam from her jetsam. She reaches for a statuette on the nearest shelf, the sort of busty wench that might once have graced the prow of a schooner, and, although she can't be certain, has the odd feeling that the dust, which covers everything, recedes like a tide, or, she thinks, like iron filings fleeing the wrong magnet. She takes her hand away, and the dust seems to surge forward again, forming a thick rhyme that might have been there a century. Wanting to state neither the obvious nor the impossible, Theo decides to leave it, and instead look at the maps that paper the walls above the shelves. They are clearly out of place among the Victoriana, half of them being blow-ups of modern street maps from London, Manchester, Paris, Berlin and New York. Each is annotated with scrolls and arrows and an inked commentary on the manners awaiting discovery. Behind the bins, 1996, 23rd of June to 14th of August, three square miles. Half-decent summer, storms in August. Few celebs, access to good bars. Or, door on the second landing, 1739, 2nd of October to 15th February, 1740, 11 square miles. War of Jenkins' ear, great frost, bloody cold Christmas, mind the vapours. Each commentary is the sort of abridged sales pitch a real estate agent might pin to a property and loot. 
She wonders who the market is. Are there people who collect manners as others collect stamps or butterflies? Or are these intended for people like Josh? Dropouts from history looking for a new home. People like Josh. Or people like her. Would she be happy, parked in 1996 forever, going to the same gigs, drinking at the same pubs with none of it mattering, brushing shoulders with the Britpop crew or the good mixer, no tomorrows to worry about, no need to find herself a future. God, she can feel the weight lifting from her shoulders already. The shadow cabinet is priceless. She understands why now, but how much would one of these maps cost her? Jones? Kilby and Nero are waiting atop a step leading through to the next room. Both are cast in silhouette by the light beyond. Theo moves to follow and yelps as two of the suits of armour step forward to block her path reaching for the broadswords at their sides. She hadn't realised the suits are occupied. Or maybe, and this is worse, they aren't. Jones is with us, Kilby says, tapping the nearest visor. We're here for Mr Hinchcliffe. The suits stop, nod, and step back into their dust-rhymed footprints. Theo follows Kilby into the light. Do forgive our suits. A pair of old men need security on a manner like this. You know what the future's business is like. The small man who meets them on the step has long, grey hair that falls in tangled ribbons around a long grey face. This is Hinchcliffe. He is a good match for the dusty treasures of the foyer, his haggard morning coat and suit giving the impression that nothing in his stock is more worn or ancient than he is. He is hunched as if used to huddling over a desk and hides his eyes behind smoked, dark glasses. Wretched evening out there, not safe on the streets in that fog. Family down the road lost two kids to it just last week. Poor little bleeders. Only moved to the manor two months ago. Breaks your heart to think of it. The money someone could have made from those souls, I tell you. Hardly touched. No wonder the fog went for them. Real pea super, innit? This interjection from Nero causes the party to stop. Hinchcliffe turns, lowers his glasses, and gives Nero the sort of open-mouthed frown that implies he's just spat on the rug. Nero curls his shoulders forward and presses on. He's a student, Kilby says by way of explanation. Hinchcliffe nods and adjusts his sunglasses. It doesn't take Theo long to work out the reason for the dark glasses. Coming to the end of a short, narrow corridor, she squints into a sudden glare. She staggers and stops, waiting for the stark golden light to reveal a large room with a curved ceiling, three times the width of the previous room, and packed with towering shelves of glowing lanterns. No, not lanterns. Glass jars of every shape and size. Jam jars, mason jars, killing jars, even canopic jars. Jars with cork stoppers and screw lids. Old wine bottles, decanters and jugs. Boston rounds, bullets and beer bottles each filled with the same iridescent liquid that had, until Theo dropped it, carried Josh's soul. Are these all souls? Kilby flips on a pair of oversized antique glasses he has borrowed from a shelf in the front room. There is a vague effect of past-it 50s Hollywood star. Hmm? Oh, well, some of them. Most are just extracts, futures that were worth more to someone else, or simply worth too much to keep. Depends how desperate you are. Me? Kubi corrects himself. How desperate one is. I know how desperate you are, Jones, but best not to touch anything you're not ready to purchase. Now, 
The shopkeeper is saying, in a reedy voice, "'You were interested in some past clients of ours. I, I must say, it all seems very irregular. Very irregular indeed. I'd be a rum cove to go around telling all and sundry the particulars of my past punters. The damage to our reputation could be irredeemable, ruinous, apocalyptic even.' "'Proper batty fanged,' Nero says, experimentally, but everyone ignores him. He tugs his book back out of his pocket to check a page for errors. "'We'll pay,' Kilby says. "'Ah, well, then that's an entirely different kettle of kippers. "'Mr. Parnell!' A beaded curtain shivers and a tall man slides through it. Unlike his partners, his clothes are immaculate, his black hair slicked with brilliantine, his black trousers pressed, his polished brogues agleam. There are no fingerprint smudges on his smoked lenses. Under his right arm is a heavy-looking book as fat as any encyclopedia. "'You've met my partner, Mr. Parnell.' Hinchcliffe holds up a hand to forestall greetings from all parties. Don't get the man talking, Parnell could talk the varnish off a table. The finest soulsmith this side of Bruges, but my word, what a terrible bore. Parnell, fetch the... Oh, mind out, he's brought the damn thing already. Hinchcliffe snaps his fingers with impatience. Well, hand it over, man, don't let's dilly-dally. Hinchcliffe shuffles over to a narrow desk by the entrance and heaves the register up onto it, his spine creaking in an uncanny echo of the book's leather binding. Now, which particular past punter was it that interested you? Yes, yes, I know! Seething with impatience, he slaps away Parnell's long fingers, which seem to be directing his attention to a section towards the back of the book. Good Lord, man, will you never let me be? As he thumbs through with impressive and tedious slowness, it occurs to Theo that this pair are exactly what she might have expected from Dickensian shopkeepers, just as the street outside had been biscuit-tin-perfect. Now she thought about it. Hadn't the Albion felt like the 70s she'd seen in old film and telly, more myth than reality? Maybe that's what the manners were, memories of a past that never quite happened. As Hinchcliffe quietly bickers with the silent Parnell, Theo looks around for Nero. He has sulked off down one of the aisles and is squatting, studying a collection of two-gallon jars on a lower shelf. The expression on his face, cast in heavy inks by the soul light, is eager, almost entranced. It's the first time Theo has seen him excited about anything. Seeing Theo coming, he stands up, dusts his palms down, and affects nonchalance. Old Inchcliffe, don't half rabbit on. See anything you like? Nero shuffles his feet. What is it about this boy that makes him so pleasurable, no, so necessary, to tease? Just window shopping? Aiming to offer a suggestion, Theo takes the nearest jar, a mason jar large enough for a dozen plums, from the shelf. She is vaguely aware of Nero flinching and telling her to stop, but... Her hands are pressed flat against the glass, heat ghosts expanding around the pain from her fingers. She's breathing hard. On the other side of the glass, far below, is London. The real London. Her London. Full daylight. People tiny on the streets below. Toy cabs and buses. She's looking down from her office. She knows it is her office, 23rd floor. She can see her reflection in the glass. It isn't her reflection, except it is. That is her. If she looks hard through the reflection, she can see herself Theo. But she isn't Theo. Not anymore. The young man behind her, the man cupping her breasts, kissing her neck, he is her personal assistant. The wrongness of it all is thrilling, and that 
troubles her. Without meaning to, she thinks of her husband. She thinks of the children. God, no, not the children. Not now. Lean into the wrongness. Enjoy it. That was the whole point. The man lifts her skirt and... Hinchcliffe wraps her across the knuckles with a brass letter opener. It stings. He's already snatched the jar from her. She understands now why he wears those scuffed leather gloves and replaces it on the shelf. No touching the merchandise. No tasters. No rubbernecking. Tell her, Parnell. Oh, no, never mind. No more gas bagging. Just go and prepare the other room. I, I, I don't suppose you thought to put the kettle on. With a silent sigh, the taller man shuffles off once more through the beads. Dizzy and breathless, Theo sways where she is. She feels, there's no other way of putting it, thoroughly cold showered. All that lingers is an exhilarating sense of illicit freedom and the bitter tang of guilt. Nero offers her a shrug of an apology. What was that? Someone else's soul? Nero says. I was somewhere else, doing something else. Theo worries, her cheeks are burning. She smooths her skirt. You were wherever they should be. Simple, innit? Is it? It didn't feel simple. So someone out there should be having a very good time. Wondering why they aren't, Theo realises she understands something about Nero. You want to be somebody else, she says, keeping her voice quiet, looking along the racks of second-hand souls and pawned futures. Nero glances at Kilby, shrugs in a lame defence. So? Who? Another glance at Kilby. Don't matter, somebody, that's all. Jones? Kilby is calling her over to the counter. Hinchcliffe thinks he's found the transaction we're looking for. Josh? Kilby nods. What happens next is up to you. How so? Well, Hinchcliffe is running a business. He won't share the details unless we pay up. And last I checked, you're the client. You're saying I need to pay? Theo taps at her empty pockets and feels something heavy settle in her gut. How much? The shopkeeper pushes her aside, bustling past to get back behind his counter. That entirely depends on you, my girl. Chiefly, it depends on what you've already traded. If you're down to the dregs, it could be a tremendously complicated operation. Mr. Parnell does hate prospecting in the depths. She's intact, Kilby says. Theo bristles. Um, what do you mean, intact? Well, save for a small fee to the witches. Hinchcliffe rubs his gloved palms together. Well now, fresh meat. You don't get many of those to the dozen. Bring her through and Mr. Parnell will get started. Theo digs her heels into the rug. Whoa! Hold on, get started on what? Kilby's smile is infuriatingly opaque. Jones, I told you when we first met, and I told you again in the cab, this will cost you. Old Hinchcliffe here is going to do us a favour, but his partner will want a piece of your soul. My soul? Well, just a little piece. He can't have a little piece. Yes, he can. He'll just isolate one of your futures. One of my futures? A potential future, a story that could happen to you, except now it won't. It'll happen to someone else. Like that £20 note? Well, a bit more than that. That was a moment. Hinchcliffe will want a whole thread, a, a plot line. You know how you get those deleted scenes on DVDs? Theo doesn't want to talk about DVDs. What if I want that plot line? Then you'll need to decide if you want it more than you want your boyfriend. Whatever it takes, I believe you said. Look, Jones, we're only talking a potential future. There's a good chance you'll end up living a completely different one. 
You're giving up something you'll probably never use. But I could. And I'll know. I'll know what I could have had. Theo can feel panic rising. It is an amplified version of the same panic that rises whenever she has to make a decision. The awareness that every decision makes life a little smaller somehow. One less choice. One less possibility. She needs to be surrounded by open doors. Why can't you pay? Why can't Nero? Well, Nero doesn't have a soul to sell. He was born on a manor. That is news. Theo isn't sure of the correct response. There'll be time for that later. And and you? Me? Kilby puts a palm to his chest, gives the hollow laugh of the outraged. You're the client, Jones. And I'm paying you. Oh, God. I, I'm paying you this, aren't I? That's what this has all been about. You want my soul. The horror of this spreads through her so quickly and so malignantly that Theo can't believe she hasn't diagnosed it sooner. What had seemed metaphoric and distant is now all too literal and immediate. Nero had come to her to lure her to the Albion, where Kilby would agree to help her for the price of her soul. It had all been a slow and elaborate con job. You tricked me. Tricked me into selling my soul. And what do I get out of it? A name? That's it. Josh is gone, hasn't he? That's what you said. She doesn't like the sound of her own voice. That is what annoys her most about Kilby. She realises that he makes her look like one of those girls. The not fun girls with their questions and objections. Someone who sees problems coming. Josh had been the warrior. She had been the stirrer. She realises now that she had been happy with that arrangement, even if she hadn't known it at the time. Theo lets her shoulders slump. Maybe she should have known this was where the morning was headed. Maybe she had known. God, and I said I'd give anything to find him. Kilby watches her. With pity, maybe. With sympathy, probably. It is hard to tell if he means either. He gestures towards the dark door through which Hinchcliffe has vanished. It's your choice, Jones. That really doesn't help. Chipshop Elvis spends most of the morning on the bench, staring at the pencil line sketching in a gate just off Seven Sisters Road. The Finsbury Astoria. Latterly, the Rainbow Theatre. Now a church for some weird Brazilians. A lost temple to rock and roll. Who hadn't played there? The Beach Boys recorded an album there. Jimi Hendrix burned his first guitar there. Frank Zeppa broke his leg. Before any of that, Eddie Cochran played two nights in April 1960, his final London dates. Less than a week later, he would be dead in a car crash coming back from Bristol. But not now. Now he is out there, waiting for Chip Shop, forever playing Twenty Flight Rock and Summertime Blues. Nero was a fool to give this up so easily. This is a golden ticket. What wouldn't Chipshop have put on offer? His whole back catalogue of stolen futures, for one. The names of every soulsmith north of the Thames. He could have told Kilby exactly where that skinny bloke and his mate were headed. He could have let them know about the rumours around the fallen. The uprising. But they didn't ask him. Nobody ever asked him anything interesting. They underestimated him. Everyone always did. But he knew things. Things that could get a lot of people into a lot of trouble, if only anyone ever thought to ask. He goes back to the urinal. The coffee has gone straight through him. Always the same. He doesn't have the kidneys for caffeine. He is whistling to himself, 
Three Steps to Heaven. He wonders if that is on the set list. Soon he will know. He can take a recording kit in with him, make a few bootlegs, sell them at the market. No, no, think bigger. Take them to a record company. Look what I just found in an attic somewhere. Hell, he can take in a camera, bring the whole thing out on DVD. He is in such a good mood that it hardly surprises him to find he has company. Another body at the urinal beside him. Not a trickle against the steel. Business is looking up. Glancing down at the man's shoes, he notices they are a poor pair. One is a workman's boot, the other a canvas trainer. Both are left feet. Chip Chop Elvis stops whistling. Thinking twice about it, he looks up into the borrowed, unsmiling face of a meatsmith. You've been listening to The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk, Book One, How to Disappear Completely, written and performed by Mike Bartlett. If you'd like to find out more about this podcast, check out salmonanddusk.com. been listening to a Burnt Toast production.